Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Van Jones, whose work to fight for criminal justice reform is helping hundreds of incarcerated individuals across the country. His CNN series, The Redemption Project, explores the human potential for redemption. We talk about the criminal justice system and explore what needs to happen to solve this national epidemic. I'm Van Jones, and I'm fighting for criminal justice reform. Sorry, not sorry. million people are currently in the criminal justice system in the United States. We're the land of the free, but yet we lock up more people than any place else on the planet Earth. 4.5 million of those people are currently on parole or probation, many for well beyond a reasonable term. I was convicted as a first-time nonviolent drug offender and sentenced to life in federal prison. I have the exact same sentence as Charles Manson. Nearly one out of every 100 Americans is behind bars, a 500% increase over the last 30 years. We spend $80 billion per year on prisons and jails. Conditions of a prisoner or jail often make survivors of really significant trauma worse. One out of every three American adults have a criminal record preventing access to employment, housing, or education and job skill development. Now imagine if you go to this job interview and this door is being slammed in your face every single time. This happened to me over a hundred times when I came out of prison in 2013. One in every 28 children has a parent in prison or jail. 10 million children will experience a parental incarceration at some point. The pain and the guilt of how different her life could have been if I could have just been there for her. The destruction and hurt that separation due to incarceration causes cannot ever adequately be described with words. You and I met when you were working uh, with Cut 50 on the Dignity for Incarcerated Women program. Yeah, it's true. And I was just so struck at uh by your your thoughtfulness and how um that campaign was shaped and I was wondering if you could tell my listeners a little bit about that and why there was a need for it. Well, I've been working on criminal justice issues for about 25 years, a little bit more than that if I'm honest and um I think all too often the way we talk about criminal justice, we talk about uh, you know, guys behind bars, men behind bars, brothers behind bars. And what we don't pay attention to is the fact that the biggest growing population uh, behind bars is actually women. And women going to prison often because of the activities of their boyfriends or husbands or partners um, that they then get, you know, popped for conspiracy on and sometimes do longer and more time uh, than their partners do. And it creates a real crisis in um, you know, families, unfortunately, in a very different way when the mom goes away than the dad because often the mother really isn't the primary caregiver. And then, of course, women go to prison. Turns out, guess what? They're pregnant in prison, and prisons aren't designed for pregnant people. They're not designed uh, for, you know, all the things that happen uh, for women. And so we've had to fight, and I've been so proud as a uh, founder of the Dream Corps uh, in Oakland. We've got a national campaign called Hashtag Cut 50, uh, cut50.org that's working to cut the prison population and crime in half. And the big campaign we took up over the past couple of years is Dignity for Incarcerated Women. The idea that we've got to pass a bunch of laws to help women in particular, uh, we, you know, it would be better if they weren't going to prison in such large numbers. Uh, but certainly when they get there, uh, they should be treated with dignity and their special needs and uh, core needs should be taken uh, advantage of, for, uh, taken account of. For instance, you should not shackle women when they are giving birth to babies. Uh, they're not likely to jump up and run away, and yet uh, that had been a, a common practice. 
um, women should be able to get sanitary items without having to, you know, work and and try to save up money to pay for them. Those are kind of basic necessities, but um, they are, uh, you know, not offered. And so sometimes women, when they don't have money, and you often don't have money uh, in prison, just have to to bleed uh, for that time of the month. Just all kinds of indignities we won't get into, but uh, we uh, passed uh, almost 10 bills across the country now on our way to passing, you know, 20 by 20, which, which is our goal. Our leadership on this is Jessica Jackson, the, the great uh, criminal justice uh, fighter uh, who's uh, helped to lead the victory on the First Step Act, and also Topeka Sam, uh, herself formerly incarcerated, uh, who has just been a, a wonder uh, since she got out of prison and also helped on First Step and so many things. So it's a woman-led campaign. I'm happy to be a cheerleader for it and a, and a supporter. Uh, but these are the kind of issues and causes uh, that I'm, you know, just uh, passionate about, have been for decades, and I think. And, we are and why? Just now- why is that? Was there one moment, or was that one? Was there one person that you met along the way? What What sparked your interest in criminal justice reform? You know, being an African American guy in the early '90s, I got out of law school in '93. '92 um, was Rodney King uh, when there was a big rebellion in Los Angeles and civil, civil unrest all across the country because an African-American motorist was beaten by uh, four L.A. cops on videotape and nothing happened to the cops. Uh, that was huge for me. It was a huge formative thing. I was like, geez, I look like that guy. Like, you know, I could have been that guy. Um, and then um, a couple, you know, I graduated in 93. Very quickly after that, the Clinton crime bill was passed. Uh, which basically helped accelerate the whole prison building boom. Uh, three strikes and you're out. So many things that were happening when I was in my 20s. And as a young black guy with a law degree, I felt like this was a fight that was personal to me. I'm, I've never been involved in any illegal activity, but I felt like the color of my skin was illegal um, given mm-hmm. the way the police and prison system was developing. So I just, just you know, took it on. Maybe the same way a young Latino or Latina might take on the immigration fight right now. And uh, now, almost 30 years later, uh, there's an opportunity to do something about it. So the most horrific experience of my incarceration was the transport. And I can remember being handcuffed and shackled and telling the guard that the, the the shackles were too tight and they made it tighter. And to this day, I still have scars. Well, things have been festering under the surface in the prison system for a long time. When I was 22 years old, long before I had my law degree, uh, I found myself alone in a courtroom holding my two-month-old daughter uh, as I watched my husband get taken off to prison for a low-level drug offense. He spent three and a half years there, and it absolutely ripped my family apart. Um, At age 25, I was arrested at nine months um, pregnant. And uh, three days after incarceration, I was subsequently handcuffed to a bed for 43 hours. Trying to help reform the criminal justice system. Now it's being publicized on another level. I thought it was just funny that it had to happen to, like, a celebrity. Somebody with a known face to America for it to be, like, a real deal issue. It's been crazy. It's sad that it often takes uh, the hardships to to find our voices, but I'm so grateful for uh, people like you that are inspired to make a difference and, um, you know, have been able to fulfill it. And And I think that there's something about the way in which you are a storyteller that sets you apart. Hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I really wanted to talk to you about the Redemption Project and why you felt it was so uh, crucial to do this. Because I know for me, being in the storytelling business, I feel like it's really the only way that we can change hearts and minds is through storytelling and making things human again. We've gotten so far away from the humanity of everything. So will you tell me about Redemption Project? Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that that word, you know, human. Um, I often say the opposite of humanization is criminalization, you know, criminalization. Mm. If you say a whole group of people, that that group, they're all nothing but thugs or they're all nothing but terrorists or they're all whatever it is. Once you criminalize a whole population, a whole neighborhood, a whole nation, then they are, they're less than human in the minds of people. And whatever happens to them, we don't have human feelings toward or human feeling about. It's a way of really severing connection. And that's all done by storytelling, by telling 
you know, scary stories about a population over and over again. Well, at the same time, the opposite of criminalization is humanization. So telling stories, just human stories about what's really happening in those communities and what's really happening in our families and what's really going on can have a huge uh, uh, counter effect. And so that's part of why I'm in media. It's part of why you're in the media. Um, but the Redemption Project is really special because um, I decided that given how nasty our culture has gotten, you know, with all of just the you know, just such negativity and no empathy and no forgiveness and no compassion. Right. And we just write each other off. We label each other, you know, call out culture and cancel culture. All this stuff has become, it's become trendy to have no empathy. That's what's popular. And I just decided I wanted to just, wanted to just go in the opposite direction, you know, go 180 degrees in the opposite direction and do a show that would actually be focused on empathy and, and listening and, and compassion. And that's what the Redemption Project is. And so I talked to eight people who've done really bad things. Um, we've gone to prison for those bad things. Some are still in prison. Most are still in prison. And these are people who want to make amends. They want to apologize. They want to atone. Um, and then I find the people that they harmed or the surviving family members in all too many cases. And then I get their backstory. And then I just put them in a room. And I let them talk face-to-face for the first time about what happened and uh, with both sides hoping to get to some kind of healing or some kind of understanding. And listen, it doesn't, you know, eight episodes doesn't always get to a warm and fuzzy place. In two of the episodes, it does not get to a warm and fuzzy place. Mm -hmm. But in three of the episodes, it really happens, you know, it's just a a miracle. Uh, Breakthrough for everybody happens, and they actually, the the victims, the surviving family members actually go to the parole board and try to get the person out of prison. So you literally have every conceivable um, kind of response. When she asked me why, it's going to be like, I don't know, how do I explain that? You know what I mean? How do I tell you your son had to die? I've experienced a horrible tragedy in my life. An individual caused that tragedy. Now I want to have this conversation. It turns out that when something really bad happens to you and you, you're left with questions you don't know, you're in your own kind of prison. Now you may have gotten the verdict that you wanted, that person may be in prison, but you're in your own kind of prison. And the only person who's got a key to that prison you're in is the person who did it, who could actually maybe help you get to some kind of understanding. I want him to look me in the face and tell me why he killed my mother. I want him to understand he took somebody great and no amount of jail time will fix that. People say, I hope you get closure. There is no closure. Never. How do you prepare yourself for staring across the table to somebody that has taken the life of their child? Just what if he is still a violent person? I don't know where we're going to land, but... We're all in, man. Is the lesson there, is the lesson there, do you think it's restorative justice or is the lesson forgiveness? I think the lesson is that we have to hold open the possibility that talking to each other can help. Mm. Doesn't always lead to forgiveness. Doesn't always lead to healing. Doesn't always lead to restore, even to a restoration. But it's very hard to get there if we won't even talk. And uh, so, but this show is, just to be clear, this show is not a, a should show. Everyone should do this. It's more of a could show. You know, you could do mm. this. And, you know, if, and something might happen. Even the ones that don't end up warm and fuzzy, the people who have been hurting for years and years, wondering about what happened to their loved one, wondering why it had happened, wondering if the person who had done the wrong cared or, you know, just giving like a forced kind of apology or, you know, a coerced statement from the police. They just not knowing, not knowing what actually had happened, really what happened. Um, because the courts don't let you find out what happened. You know, you can cop a, a deal, plead the fifth, get 30 years, and the person who got hurt or the surviving family members still don't know the facts. And so, you know, even the ones where it doesn't resolve uh, in, you know, this kind of, you know, fairy tale type of way, you still see some relief and some just unburdening from being able to find out more of what's going on. And even that can give more space for healing. Do you think, this is kind of a philosophical question, do you think that there's any such thing as closure? You know, there's some wounds that that never close, Um, even physically. The things can happen to you that never, ever go back the way they were. 
and that's true emotionally. It's, it's true spiritually. There's some wounds that don't close. These parents that have lost their kids, you know, to impaired drivers or to gang members or whatever, there will not be closure. Uh, they are they have a life sentence of grief, um, but there can be progress toward healing. Uh, there can be uh, some uh, uh, relief of burden. There can be some shared. You know, it's interesting in some of these cases. Uh, you know, halfway through the conversation, uh, you know, the, the victim and the uh, offender, uh, they start having a conversation that only they can only have with each other because, you know, nobody else understands what happened that night. Right. Nobody else really gets it. Right. It's a weird thing that can happen. So uh, I don't, it's not, it's, to me, it's, we started out very naive. Oh, it's going to closure and forgiveness. And, and we found out very quickly, that's really not the point. Uh, the point is that um, when we talk about people, but we don't talk to them, uh, wounds get deeper. Uh, when we talk to people and not just about them, some wounds can at least begin to heal. And that's worth the risk uh, in many situations. I've got breaking news right now. It looks like a sweeping victory for criminal justice reform. Finally, the Senate just passed the First Step Act. This was a good piece of legislation. I think you could argue that maybe some of the amendments that were defeated tonight should have passed. But as a whole, I think this is a really good victory. 87 to 12. Right now, our, our federal uh, criminal justice system, particular prison system, is broken. People go into prison and it is not a correctional institution. They come out often worse. We later realized that uh, it was the system itself that had to be attacked. It was the system itself that had to be abolished. Where are we in in reforming the system? Do you think we're we're any closer? Do you think mm-hmm. are you hopeful? Mm-hmm. Look, I think that we are at the beginning of the end of mass incarceration because I think that the truth about the incarceration industry is coming out more and more every day. I think that the culture is now much more attuned to the fact that we're locking up a lot of people uh, for too long for dumb stuff. Um, and that addiction and mental health and poverty, uh, you know, are more of a predictor of who's going to get in prison or, you know, wrong color skin, wrong zip code than anything about justice. But when I say we're at the beginning of the end of mass incarceration. I mean, it took us 30 to 40 years to build this thing, and both parties were a part of it. And it's going to take a long time to unwind this stuff. And so I do think um, that the numbers are going to start to come down, but. You know, we got almost 2 million people in prison, um, and that's more than any other country. China has a billion people, three times our number, and they only have about a million people in prison. Mm. We have, you know, a third of their popula- population and twice as many people behind bars, and we're supposed to be the land of the free. And so that gives you a sense of how far off track uh, we've gotten. Are there any countries that you've traveled to where you've explored their criminal justice system that you feel are doing it better than we're doing it? I mean, obviously everyone is, but are there any countries in particular that you could say, oh, you know what? Germany is doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. You know, I've not been to Germany, but everybody who has comes back and they say, listen, this is a much better model. Um, they're more humane to people when they, when they are locked up. They, they really work hard to make sure that family ties are kept in place. Um, there, you know, there's some prisons that really are more like um, dorms. Uh, they encourage people to keep working if they can. They, they they basically understand that for the people who have you know made a bad mistake and are not going to be chronic, dangerous, violent people, which is the vast majority of people, they've just done something really, really bad or really, really dumb or just something, you know, frankly, just illegal, and they need to have a consequence and a deter- deterrence. You don't have to give them 90 years. You don't have to you know move them as we do from New York where they got arrested to Arizona right. where they're going to be housed. Right. I mean, you don't have to do the kind of stuff that we do that's just so incredibly destructive that there's really no chance that person's ever going to come back and be able to live a normal life. There are two big differences between the Nordic system and the American way of doing things. Since most inmates are going to be re-entering society at some point in time, they set the prisons up to be as much like the outside world as humanly possible. Also... Each of the inmates retains the civil rights that they entered with, and these civil rights include the right to education, health care, and voting. 
Secondly, the role of the prison guard. In Norway, a prison guard is called a contact officer, and each contact officer is assigned two to three inmates that they are personally responsible for, kind of like a social worker. But, Jenny, how, how do they dispel violence, you may ask? Well, they do it through communication. Interestingly, Halden Maximum Security Prison does have a restraint bed, but in the eight years this prison has been in operation, they haven't had to use it one time, all because of communication. We don't need prison as, an, as the uh, solution for every problem. So when our young people get in trouble, uh, a lot of times it's nonviolent, a lot of times it's minor uh, fights and things like that. A lot of times they've been sent to the prison system, to the juvenile justice system, and locked up when there are other ways to deal with them. It's also just illogical and irrational and, and inhumane. It doesn't, it doesn't make any... And expensive. Expensive, counterproductive, actually, you know, crimogenic. In, in other words, uh, after a certain point, you're actually making it more likely that the person is going to continue a life of crime because if you really crush somebody... And then, by the way, we send people home uh, from a physical prison. We put them in a social prison right. where they can't vote in many states. They can't rent an apartment. They can't live in public housing. They can't get a student loan. Um, and then we say, well, you, know, you, should, you should be successful. One reason why I became the uh, founding CEO for the uh, Reform Alliance, uh, which Jay-Z and Meek Mill and some other heavy hitters have pulled together earlier this year, one reason I stepped in to be the, the, the startup CEO is because of their focus on probation and parole reform. Uh, we think about the 2 million people who are locked up, but there's twice as many. There's 4 million people who are caught up on probation and parole. And the probation and parole is not what you think it is. It is not, it's, it's not a springboard to success. It's a trapdoor into failure. It is, a, it is the hinge on the revolving door back into prison, back into prison for people who are not committing new crimes, people who are not breaking the law, people who are not robbing banks, people who are not doing anything. But the, the, the terms are so strict and crazy that you can be 10 minutes late for a meeting with your probation or parole officer and go back to jail for six months, lose your house or your apartment that you finally got, lose your job that you finally got, lose your kids back into foster care, and then six months later have to start all the way over from scratch um, for something as, as minor as that. Or your aunt had a heart attack in the wrong neighborhood and you went to check on her back into prison. Or you signed a contract you know, for to buy a car without permission. Or you signed a marriage license. We have somebody who got married signed their marriage license, had to go back to prison for nine months because they signed a contract without permission from the probation or parole officer. This is just stupid stuff, anti-family, anti-work, uh, anti-employer even, because who's going to hire people who could just disappear at a moment's notice? And so, we, so you know, we're working very hard on that. The Redemption Project, you know, one reason why we did the Redemption Project is we wanted to push people to open their hearts and ears to hear from people that are almost always written off. These are not nonviolent drug offenders, blah, blah, blah. These are people who've done really bad things and, uh, and things that are very, very hard to forgive, even as a viewer. Jason Wayne Clark. Your name has been in my mind for the last 20 or so years. I've thought about you nearly every week of my life, and I have many questions for you. I finally decided to reach out. I'd had hopes you would be willing to meet me. My name is Mariah Lucas, the daughter of Charlene Heinemann, the woman you killed. After the first paragraph, I had to put it down. It was like a slug to the chest. I had to put it down. I couldn't believe what I was holding in my hand. Uh, 23 years of no contact from anybody. I realize that my contacting you may come as a surprise. I want to tell you a little about myself and the life that I have lived. She told me about her life and the things that she had been through. It's what we call the cycle of violence. I went through a cycle of violence and my actions started another cycle of violence that she had to live through. And she was the one that broke that cycle of violence. I would like to ask that you would allow me to come visit you. At the end of that letter, she had told me to forgive myself. And, uh, that hit me harder than anything else. It was... It was unreal. 
our hope is that if we can at least listen to their story and understand their background and understand their atonement. Some of these people did stuff when they were 16 years old, and now they're in their 40s or 50s. Right. Um, and so understand their atonement and their regret that, you know, if we can at least open our hearts to hear from those folks, well, then maybe some of the other people, including our neighbors who voted for the wrong person, et cetera, we might give them a little bit more of a break. Uh, so I have to ask this question, especially to you, because you're so close to this. Uh, do you believe that people who have done really bad things deserve the right to vote? I do. Um, I believe that voting is a human right. If you are a citizen of a country, um, you have the right to participate in that country. And it's better for people to feel like they are still a part of the country and should keep up with civic events and should keep up with the news and should care what's going on and and form opinions and be a part than for people to feel like, well, now nothing I do matters and, and it, it, you know, no, it doesn't matter. I'm no longer really a citizen anymore. That's That's more dangerous. And what I will say is this, which nobody's really pointed out. People are jumping on Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders said everybody should vote, period. doesn't matter. Um, you know, when you, if you commit a crime, you should lose your right to walk around, uh, per, perhaps, you know, if it's a serious enough crime. But even then, you shouldn't lose your humanity. You shouldn't lose your citizenship. I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Um, and people say, well, that's just terrible. Well, all right, then, then go back and look at the census. The census counts prisoners in determining congressional representation. Yes. So we have a system that is taking poor and black and brown people out of blue cities, taking them way out to red counties, sticking them in prisons. Those red counties then get to count all those prisoners and say, we deserve more representation in Congress. But the bodies that gave them those representation, we now say, but they can't vote. Mm -hmm. So your body gets to determine the, you know, who goes to Congress, but your vote doesn't. And it's not, you know, and, and so it's a double harm. You're reducing the number of people who uh, are in those urban environments. Uh, their count is lower than it should be. You're increasing the count in those uh, red uh, counties and, and red parts of, uh, of the state. So they're, they get more representation, and yet the people that you're counting can't vote. So, look, you got to make a choice here, America. Either right. these folks count or they don't. How can their bodies count, but their votes don't count? How can we count their bodies and not their votes? If you don't want to count their votes, don't count their bodies. No matter how much you change, no matter how much you do in the community, I can't vote. Statistically, man, one out of every four blacks, males, going to either be incarcerated. And, you know, poverty and where you live at have a lot to do with it. What would it mean for you to get your rights back, to be able to vote? It would mean the world. But I can actually do something about it by punching in the ballot. You know, this is a modest proposal that it's possible to earn your way back into the community. And you can earn your way back by fully completing all the terms of your sentence. And I, I also feel like if someone's going to put in the effort to actually register to vote, everyone should have the right that's going to put in that effort. And it's crazy like, to take yeah. that right away from someone. I agree with you. Especially if they're going to make the effort, which, by the way, people that are walking around every day that have total privilege don't even make that effort to vote. True story. Um, I also want to talk to you about your book, Beyond the Messy Truth, because it exposes the utter hypocrisy on both sides of the political divide um, and really addresses what's tearing America apart. And I wanted to hear from you if you think there is any coming back from this. Well, thank you for mentioning my book. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I should mention it more often myself. Um, people, I think, sometimes get confused by what I'm doing. Like, what the heck is Van Jones doing talking to Republicans and, you know, uh, uh, reaching out to the Trump White House and all sorts of stuff? No, we Look, need more farm, people doing that. Well, uh, you know, uh, please say it again for the people in the back. Um, but my view is that we have a very, very ferocious enemy uh, that is determined to undermine American democracy and, and, and divide our country. And his name is Vladimir Putin. And most of what we do on the left would literally just read off of a script of what he would want us to do. Um, people say, well, you know, Trump is a fascist and he's going to create fascism in America. Uh, listen, Vladimir Putin 
does not want a fascist America. That would imply a strong, unified America, even if it was unified for bad. He wants a divided, dysfunctional, crazy America that can't do anything. And that's what he's getting. That's literally what he's getting. And we always have to ask ourselves, at a human level, are we being right? But at a political level, are we being smart? Is it smart for us to find zero common ground with 80 million people who voted for Donald Trump? Is it politically smart for us to just give them all to Donald Trump or worse, give them all to Vladimir Putin to uh, manipulate as Putin wants to with no contest, with no even attempt to find a co- some common ground beyond the battleground? Listen, on the battleground issues, you know, you're snatching babies from their mother at the border. We're going to fight. You're throwing transgender people out the military for no reason besides the fact that they're transgender. We're going to fight. Yep. There's all you know. You're gonna you know let polluters just cook the planet. You're gonna pass out tax cuts to the gazillionaires. We're gonna fight this plan. Trust me, I'm on the left side of Pluto. I'm gonna fight you on all that stuff. But we can't only fight. We cannot only fight and still have a country. And so you've got to find, even in the middle of all that, some common ground projects to work on. Otherwise, you could literally just have this this thing fly apart. And to me, the the best common ground, as I point out in the book, you know, those issues that hit people at the very bottom where, frankly, both political parties have let them down. People always tell me as a black person, how do you keep voting for Democrats and 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 black people just as poor as ever? I say, well, it's a good question, but I got, you know, white friends in Appalachia been voting for Republicans for generations. They're just as poor as ever. The poor people not being helped by either party. Yeah. And so, you know, people in prison are not being really helped by either party. If you're addicted, if you got mental health issues, if you're in generational poverty, if you're in prison, you're not getting helped by either party. And so I believe in bottom-up bipartisanship, a positive populism to deal with the problems that affect the, the, the poor. And I wrote it all down in the book, um, so I'm not making this up as I go along. And the book is called Beyond the Messy Truth. I appreciate you mentioning it. Um, but the Redemption Project really kind of grows out of that sensibility. Let's find common ground where we can. Let's encourage the good where we can. And I, I found a little scrap of good in the Trump White House, and I was so happy to find it. Um, I found an awful lot of bad there, and I'm happy to fight it. But we've got to encourage the good where we can. President Trump today signed a sweeping criminal justice overhaul, which had rare bipartisan support. It shortens some drug sentences and expands rehabilitation programs for prisoners. For the first time in a generation, Republicans and Democrats are arm in arm tonight saying we are sending too many people to prison. They're coming out bitter and not better. We want to make a tremendous difference. I want to say uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, on the left. Jared Kushner and Donald Trump on the right have brought together a coalition like I've never seen. You've got literally uh, the National Association of Manufacturers, Fox News and Sean Handy on the same page with Nancy Pelosi, Cory Booker, uh, uh, the ACLU, Cut 50. Something is beautiful is happening. And it's not that you have to see it to believe it. You have to believe it to see it. It's happening right now. People coming together in America to help the people who have nothing. And it's amazing. We cannot continue to characterize people as Americans by the worst moment of their lives. For the longest time, we've thought we should lock as many people up as we can for as long as we can and do nothing with them while they're gone. And somehow that would make us safer. So do you, I mean, I'm terrified for 2020. Do you think that it's just going to keep continuing to get more divisive? Yes, for a little while. Um, We've got... At least one more election cycle, if not two, where um, it's going to be bad and people are going to be uh, cheating and me- being mean and not listening to each other. And it's going to be horrible. Uh, but that's why those of us who have a longer view, um, uh, you know, us marathon runners, we have to, even in the middle of all that, even more so find those few areas where we can cooperate with each other and try to hold a moral center. I don't believe in the political center at all. Uh, I'm, people say, oh, well, Dan's become a moderate. Nope, I'm on the left side of Pluto. I'm still as, as, as left as I ever was. I'm not looking for the political center. I'm looking for the moral center. Mm. You know, where, where, is it, where is it right? Not right versus left, but right versus wrong. Where is it right for us to come together and help each other? Uh, you know, you, frankly, you can't fight poverty with only one party. Uh, you need liberal social po- policy, but frankly, you need some conservative personal policies um, to get out of poverty. Uh, my dad got out of poverty. And it was liberal social programs, including very generous 
a public education system and affirmative action, but also very conservative personal policies. He had work ethic like nobody's business and, um, you know, put his family first. And that's how he got out of poverty. So we need both parties um, to solve most of these problems. I've never seen a bird fly with only a left wing, hmm. uh, not even in Berkeley, California. You, know, you need two wings to fly. Uh, but uh, it's going. We, we, there's no easy way out of this because the liberals, my good liberal progressive friends, are as much a part of this dynamic as anybody else. Yes. They are, we are addicted to outrage. Uh, I'm, I'm, I told my, look, I tell some people last week, I'm, aren't y'all tired of being miserable? I mean, aren't you tired of having every conversation be how bad everything is? Are you, or if you died right now, would you be proud to say that your great accomplishment was in the era of Donald Trump that you were, were not happy one day? That's your like you you were daggum committed and succeeded in just being miserable and angry every day. Is that your is that I'm not a part of that. Um we have good presidents and bad presidents. My family's been here for nine generations. I'm a ninth generation American. Ninth generation American. I'm the first one in my family born with all my rights. And we've had good presidents and bad presidents. We keep fighting and we keep trying to find the good. And we keep trying to find a way forward. And we try to make a way out of no way. That's that's what we've done for generations. We had eight years of Barack Obama and everybody lost their mind. It's just like we just sat in a in the Barack Obama bubble bath, you know, for eight years and got so happy. And you know, it was time to fight. We stood up. We we're all wet and wrinkly. And nobody <laughs> knows what to do. You know, it's like guys. You know, sometimes you get a bad election outcome, but you can't let this man run the White House and your house. That's I mean, right. we have to stand for what we believe in on good days and bad, and find allies where we can. So, you know, look, I, look it's going to be if you're waiting for the external environment to change, it's not going to change. It's going to get worse. But your internal attitude toward uh, our sister and brothers who may vote against us sometimes, that can change tomorrow. And when we start talking to folks, look, I, I tell my Republican friends, if we have 100 elections, I'm going to vote against you in every one. Now, can we stop talking about that? What can we do together? Um, wh- wh- where is it that Venn diagram overlapping? And the Redemption Project is a... Uh, the good thing about the, the, the show is it's not political. It's, it, has, it doesn't talk even about policy, really. It just, it's just human beings trying to find a way out of hell. And it turns out that the key to getting out of hell for both parties is the other party, right. the other person who society says they should never even speak to. And yet it turns out that it's only by speaking to that other person that any hope is possible. Well, it's kind of like being in a in a really abusive relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we are all addicted to the drama and then the comfort that we find in each other, right, with this collective mm-hmm. pain. But at what point do we take any sort of collective pain and make the conscious choice to translate that pain into power? Mm-hmm. And then what are we going to do with that power? Are we... Uh, we're fighting for everyone, in- Republicans included. So why are we trying to do it all by ourselves? Why are we trying mm-hmm. to do it alone? And and, I, yeah. and th- how, how – where's the empathy? Where is the – you know, I grew up – and I say this all the time. I grew up with that phrase, put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. My parents used to say, you are no better than anybody else. Put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And – I think we've completely lost the capacity to put ourselves in other people's shoes because if we did, I don't think everything would be so ego driven. It's like we're spoiled and 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 just refuse to listen. Mm-hmm. And it's really it's really frustrating because I feel like if we stay on this trajectory we're at the risk of losing our democracy. Well, I agree with you 100%. When I was three years old, my mother went to prison. Having your mother taken away from you is traumatic regardless, but it's even worse when you're only three. I would get so excited when my Nana would take me to go see my mother. When I got there to visit her, I would run into her arms and she would hold me so tight I couldn't, I almost couldn't breathe. But to have your mother the one who kisses the boo-boos and gives you the little comfort that you need. To be separated from my children was an ache that I cannot even describe to you. No matter how long the visits lasted, it was never enough time. 
There isn't ever enough time in the world with your mother, especially not only a few hours every three months, if that. We want to protest a policy that's keeping families apart from prisoners because there's an FTC policy which was accepted without notice to the public that prisoners must be kept 125 miles away from their home county. That makes it tough for families to be together and families being together reduces recidivism. So it's inhumane and it's ineffective. I think part of the problem is for progressives. Progressives act like this is all supposed to be very easy. And they forget, in the United States, we have every kind of human being ever born. Every color, every faith, every sexuality, every gender expression, every kind of human being ever born is in one country. And honestly, we mostly get along. I mean, just that is a miracle in human history. Usually, I mean, I go to countries, you got two ethnic groups, and they fight all the time. Right. I'm like, y'all can't get along with two? I got like 37 languages spoken in the public schools in L.A. You can't make it with two? Right. You know, so we, what we do in this country is a miracle every day. Um, but it's not easy. And now we want for this country to do something that no country has done successfully ever uh, without violence, which is to go from one ethnic group running it to a very different coalition of ethnic, ethnic groups running it. That's very hard to do. And so, you know, some of the mainstream uh, or, or majority uh, is, is upset and scared. And that's predictable. I mean, what do you think was going to happen? I mean, uh, uh, look, when I go to Oakland, Oakland used to be almost all black. Now I go there because Silicon Valley, you know, Oakland has become a bedroom community for Google and a bedroom community for, for Facebook. So when I go to Oakland now, it's all bike shops and yoga and kale and stuff. I didn't ask for that. Right. And, you know, it's shocking to me. And if I could, if I could build a wall around Oakland and make Facebook pay for it, I probably would. <laughs> and, you know, uh, now you could talk me out of it. You could explain to me I'm being an anti-nerd or anti, you know, uh, whatever, computer geek bigot, and I could probably say, okay, you're right. But if somebody came with that idea, I'd probably listen to them. And so people, it's not so much that people fear change. They, they fear loss, and you have to be able, if you want a whole bunch of change, and we're going to keep driving change, you know, transgender, everything. But when you drive change, change is hard. And it brings up grief for people. And it brings up fear for people. And if you aren't willing to hold people and help people and, and hospice some of those uh, um, memories, uh, then people are going to resist you, and they probably should because you probably don't like them enough or love them enough to lead them. And that means you probably aren't really their friend no matter what you say. And so we've got to come to a place where we're able to say, listen, I get it, man, this is hard. Uh, but here's what I'm going to tell you. We're going to have an America where you have, a, have more of a place of honor than you had before because now it's not going to be just given to you because you happen to have be, you know, the right skin color, whatever, because of who you are. Uh, you're a white dude. You're in your 50s. You're, you know, heterosexual, blah, 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 male. Um, let me tell you something. You, you probably have a trade that you could teach somebody who doesn't have a an uncle or an aunt or a dad who knows that trade. You probably know how to raise a family. You probably know how to throw a baseball. There's probably a lot of stuff you know how to do. We need you. Yeah. We're mad because we need you. And we want you to come help. And we, we want to honor you and praise you, not because of the color of your skin, because of who you are, what you can do, what you can contribute. And, man, we need you over here. If you have that conversation with people about instead of every time you say straight white male, that person has horns. Every time you say straight white male, it's a put down. Yeah. Then you can't tell somebody, you suck, now vote for me. You suck, now do what I say. That doesn't work. So we, you can't lead people you don't love, man. And people get mad. These liberals get mad at me. I love these guys. These old, terrible white dudes that are doing such terrible stuff with the Trump hats on. I love them. I understand. They feel like nobody gives a damn about them. They shouldn't feel that way because they've been on top for so long. But even that's no comfort to them because they don't feel like that's going to stay around forever. And nobody that they know besides Donald Trump seems to understand them. And I tell you, I understand them. I understand them. And I, want, and, I'm a, and I tell them that I want them to do better and stop hanging around with these terrible ideas that have gotten their brains poisoned. But I'm not mad at them because of who they are. The White House is teaming up with an unlikely ally to fight for prison reform. We're talking about CNN political commentator Van Jones. There's Van, side by side with the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner. 
I also want to thank Van Jones, primarily because he constantly says such nice things about me. <laughs> he did. He did. Every once in a while, right? Every once in a while. He did. He's, hey, he actually has on occasion. Not too often, but I'll tell you what, though, it does feel good. Uh, as you know, and as the president pointed out, I'm tough on this White House. If you give me 100 issues on 99 issues, I've been beating them up hard uh, because I'm for human rights and for immigrant rights and for trans rights and for the environment. And it turns out Hakeem Jeffries has been working on a bill that would actually make things a lot better for people in prison right now. And Jared Kushner supports that bill. And so I went to the White House and said, listen, if you guys are serious and you want to make something happen, uh, progressives like myself on this one issue, going to fight you on 99, but on this one issue, we're not going to let federal prisons continue to be abused. If you want to get something done, uh, let's get something done. It's so interesting to me that I, listening to you, I feel like you are, and what you're saying is the new progressive. Hmm, I hope so. It should be the new progressive because we've well, become. Well, you talk to more progressives than I do these days. I spend most of my time trying to pass criminal justice bills, so I got to talk to a lot of Republicans. Well, you tell me what what are you learning in this whole process of talking to everybody with this podcast? Everybody's so excited about. I mean, what are you seeing? I mean, I, I, I have to ask the question just because I don't know what the progressives are anymore. Cause they usually just call me a sellout, so I don't really know. But I feel like I'm more progressive than I've ever been. I think, and I, I think that you are. I think this, what, what has happened is we are so divided and we are so calcified and fossilized in our ideologies. I, I have to hope that it, it needs to swing all the way to the left to, to find some sort of, you know, like the pendulum. Um, because otherwise, I don't see any way out of it. And I mean, that's why I'm trying to really focus with this on grassroots activists and people that are on the ground because because those are the people that are, you know, outside of the social media bubble that are actually in communities doing the hard work, doing the, the work like, like you are doing, having the hard conversations, saying things that might not be, quote unquote, politically correct, but saying them because they're logical and rational and, and, and right, and so I, I honestly, um, this has been the most progressive interview I've done because it feels like everyone is in their own lane. And there's wow. got to be, even though we speak so much about intersectionality, if mm. we're not intersection, you know, intersecting with the entire country and we're just choosing to intersect between the liberals and the progressives, then, there's, that, then that doesn't exist. Well, look, I, I appreciate I appreciate what what you're saying, and you know, I'm I'm old guy. I was born in '68, so I'm 50 years old. We used to call intersectionality the Rainbow Coalition, right, in the '80s, and and we were so proud in the Rainbow Coalition under Jesse Jackson and all those folks to have the the, the coal miners and the and the white farmers who were losing everything under Reagan, and you know, it was a different kind of a thing, and it wasn't. It really was what you're describing. I mean, this. Yeah, we got fancy new words for everything, but a lot of this stuff is old. And you know, you know, so I'm look, I, I'm very excited about your podcast, and everybody else is. I'm really honored to be on it. Um, you know, uh, the Redemption Project for me, you know, for CNN uh, to give you know me and my my group a chance to be in prime time. You know, 9 p.m. on Sunday nights. That's prime time. That's Anthony Bourdain's slot, by the way, mm. uh, which is, you know, that's sacred ground here at, at CNN. For, for that gives you a sense of how much important CNN is putting on these stories and uh, the, the medicine that CNN is trying to put out there uh, through these stories. And I hope people will give it a chance. A lot of people say, oh, true crime. I don't want to deal with true crime. This is not true crime. True crime is a kind of a whodunit. Um, and this, we already know whodunit. Um, that's, that's a given at the very beginning. This is about the truth long after the crime. It's a totally different approach to storytelling. You know, and the truth long after the crime is there's still so much pain, there's so much hurt, there's so much unhealed, there's so much unsaid, there's so much unheard that we still have a lot of work to do. And this show really tries to capture that work. Um, and I think we have a lot of work to do as a country um, around what's not been healed and what's not been said and what's not been heard. But I hope that this, um, I hope that people... Uh, we'll give this, it's a heartbreak to hope, heartbreak to healing kind of a show. And I hope that people will give it a chance. And I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about it. Thank you so much for being a part of the the podcast and for being a voice 
that is uh, unafraid and unapologetic about speaking their mind and their truth. Thank you so much, Van Jones. Well, thank you. Good to be in your company. You're, you're the same way, so we get along. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs> Talk to you later. Maya Angelou said, I think we all have empathy. We may not have enough courage to display it. Imagine how much could change if we all could become a little bit more courageous and understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. To close out the podcast today, I'd like to speak directly to conservatives. Hi. I know many of you see me as your mortal enemy, a celebrity who does not understand the lives of, quote, unquote, real people. And while I'm unsure of why being a celebrity or a plumber or a teacher or a farmer has any bearing on someone's status as a person, prison reform is an issue on which you and I could put aside our disagreements and work toward a goal that will achieve all of our wants together. A defining principle of conservatism is to eliminate unnecessary government. And while you and I strongly disagree often on what defines necessary, there is nowhere where unnecessary government looms larger than in our jails and our prisons. In fact, a 2018 study showed that we spend $183 billion, with a B, annually on prison and jail costs. That's nearly three times the budget of the Department of Education. It's half, again, the non-discretionary spending of the veterans' benefits. It's even more than the budget of Department of Agriculture, which keeps our food safe and available for all Americans. One of the great conservative icons of the last century was governor of California from 1968 to 1972. He often bragged about reducing the state's prison population by 34%. Why? because he just couldn't justify the expense of locking so many people up. That governor was Ronald Reagan. Now, if you can't bring yourself to agree with me, perhaps you can agree with him. It's not small money. Nearly half of the jail and prison population at any given time is made up of nonviolent offenders who likely do not need to be locked up. Imagine reducing the prison population by half. billion every year in unnecessary government spending. Think about what a tax cut of $91.5 billion every year could do. And then please, join me in this fight. We can cross swords again when we're done here. Promise. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.